0: Hello, wonderful people. Welcome to the Birmingham Literature Festival Presents podcast. I am Casey Bailey, former Birmingham Poet Laureate, and I was delighted to be one of the guest curators for the 2022 Birmingham Literature Festival. For the next few weeks, we're gonna bring you some highlights from last year's festival for you to enjoy whenever you'd like. You can subscribe to this podcast feed and get the new episodes as soon as they're available. This week's guest is one of few who universally gets referred to as a national treasure. Michael Rosen has written over 70 books, including many of the most read and most loved children's books of the modern day. He's also a poet and memoirist and joined us to talk about his book, Many Different Kinds of Love. This book was written as a result of his time on an intensive care ward during the COVID-19 pandemic in spring 2020.
1: Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the second day of Birmingham Literature Festival. We're delighted to see you. Thank you so much for joining us. We'd like to say thank you to the Arts Council England for their continued support of Writing West Midlands and the Birmingham Literature Festival. Uh, We'd also like to say thank you to Birmingham Rep for their support. My name's Sarah Mullen, and I run the Bookshop on the Green. And over the last few years, I've had the privilege of working with Michael Rosen through my work with Bourneville Bookfest. And Michael has inspired hundreds of thousands of children across the West Midlands with the outreach work that we've done through the power of poetry. And during lockdown, Michael and his good friend Benjamin Zephaniah made a video together, which we put out during the final week of home education during lockdown, when every child in the country was bored to tears and every parent was tearing their hair out. And that went all over the country and all over the world and inspired countless, well, hundreds of thousands of children. So Michael Rosen's very special to us. And I'm sure like me, when you heard the news of his illness, you your heart went out to him and his family. And he's here tonight to tell that story. So will you please join me in welcoming to the stage? Michael Rosen
2: lovely thank you very much indeed that's very nice yes I can see you as well that's good and it's nice to be here and I mean that in two senses of the word yeah think about that yes that's right well what I've done is I've done a kind of um, I've filleted the book and uh, something else I've written since, and I'm going to read you bits of that, and then maybe we have got time to have a a, a bit of a talk afterwards. So you'll see, it's very kind of fragmentary and episodic. So here we are. We start on March the 10th, 2020, when I was asked onto the Today programme, and we discussed whether there was a thought going round that if old people died of COVID, it wouldn't be so bad as young people dying of COVID. A woman with me said, well, if anyone goes, let it be me, not my grandson. I thought, oh, is Mr. Death still doing the rounds then? I thought we didn't believe in him anymore. Does he turn up at our door and say, I've got to have one of you tonight and we have to choose? Take me, we olden shout. Leave the young ones. Is that it? Hmm. March the 27th, 2020, day 12 of my illness, The years, seasons roll by, this was a tweet, in a night, sweats, freezes, sweats, freezes. I wondered whose mouth I had. I didn't remember it as made of sandpaper. Water is as good as ever. In March, 2020, you couldn't see a doctor. You couldn't go to A&E. You couldn't get tested. All you could do was ring a paramedic. I rang a paramedic. He told me to breathe down the phone. He listened. He asked me if I felt worse than yesterday. I said no. He said I was okay. (laughs) In the spare room at home, I say to Emma, it feels like... Emma's my wife. It feels like I can't get enough air. There isn't enough air. I can't catch up, I say. I got so ill, Emma called our friend and neighbor who's a doctor. She came over with an oximeter. Emma put it on my finger. 58, Emma said. Doctor said, is that the pulse? Emma said, no, the pulse is 115. Doctor wrote later she'd never seen anyone with 58 who was still conscious. (laughs) Emma drives me to A&E, Elsie in the back, that's our daughter. I am panting, it's night, the road is empty. I go in, I don't have time to turn around, they're gone. A doctor is standing by my bed asking me if I would sign a piece of paper which would allow them to put me to sleep and pump air into my lungs. Will I wake up? I say, there's a 50-50 chance, he says. If I say no, I say zero, he says. I sign. And then what happened then was that uh, I I don't know anything that happened next. But the people who looked after me uh, wrote what's called a patient diary, or what I call a very patient diary. (laughs) And on the front of it, it says, this diary can be completed by relatives, friends, nurses, doctors, and allied health professionals, to record the patient's daily events. The diary may help with the patient's post-critical care recovery by providing them with information and insight into a time when they were not aware. April the 9th, dear Michael, we are your ITU helpers today. You're doing fantastically well and fighting hard. You still have a breathing tube, but you're doing well. Keep fighting, LSC and Lizzie. And then uh, one of the nurses, actually, a guy called Dan, he he wrote his own diary, which he sent to me. And uh, he changed our names. He called me Mr. Jacobs. He wrote that he said a few Hail Marys over Mr. Jacobs, even though I know he's Jewish. (laughs) Good idea, I thought, cover all the bases. (laughs) Next day he wrote, came in, Mr. Jacobs still alive. (coughs) Wow, I thought, you must have thought that when you went home that night, Mr. Jacobs was going to cop it. Poor Mr. Jacobs. <laughs> Hi, Michael. I'm your helper this evening. Your vitals are slowly improving, including your temperature. We've wrapped you in a heated blanket and reposition you regularly to improve your lung perfusion. You're sleeping peacefully at the moment, monitored and controlled by the ventilator. We've still another eight hours together, but so far, so good. Jenny, physio by day, ITC helper by night. April the 14th. Dear Michael, you required a ventilator to take over your breathing due to your further deterioration. The ICU team had to prone you, meaning you had to lie on your belly to help improve your oxygenation. This procedure required seven people to reposition you safely. We're hoping to see you improving every day. Take one day at a time. You'll get there soon. All the best. Michael, Margie, ICU nurse. April 17th. Dear Michael, my name is Beth and I've been the house I've been the nurse looking after you overnight. I normally work at Great Ormond Street Hospital looking after children, but have been moved here to help look after adults. I call you guys big children. You've done really well overnight. You're starting to move little bits, (laughs) which is excellent. Hope you continue this great progress. You've got this. Looking forward to meeting you when you wake up. You wrote my favorite book. We're going on a bear hunt. All the best, Beth. April the 19th, dear Michael, my name is Natasha. I'm usually employed in the community, but because the school I work in is closed, I'm helping out in ICU. This evening, one of the IV lines in your neck was taken out because the doctors are happy with your progress. You've also been moving your arms about a little, and I think you might have been aware of us speaking to you. Keep fighting, Michael. April the 24th, hello, Michael. I've been asking you to blink and squeeze my hand to communicate and you've been diligently obliging. (laughs) It's the only time in my life anyone has ever called me diligently obliging. Please show your These Are The Hands poem to Boris Johnson. (laughs) Best of luck, Kajal Doshi, physio ICU helper. April 26th, hey Michael, today's been a busy day for you. Lots of doctors and nurses have been caring for you. You've been restless at times, but I've been there to hold your hand, Alison. April 29th. Good afternoon, Michael. It's Claire, the physio, again. You must be sick of me talking to you today. We've been chatting a lot to keep you stimulated so your blood pressure rises. You're turning your head when I'm talking to you as well. Great stuff. Keep going. You've got this. Claire, don't forget, I don't know anything about this at all. (coughs) Right? April 29th, night shift. You still have a breathing tube going into your throat, meaning you aren't able to speak. So unfortunately for you, it's mostly me chatting away to you. I seemed to get a response when I mentioned that you supported Arsenal, (laughs) judging from your pictures, but you didn't seem impressed when I told you I was a Derby County fan. (laughs) Keep going, keep fighting, and keep being so strong. Lizzie, kiss, kiss, physio. May the 3rd, you're trying to communicate now by mouthing words and nodding or shaking your head or using facial expressions, Natasha. May the third overnight, your blood pressure decided that it fancied being a yo-yo. And we've had to do a good amount of deep suctioning via your trachea, the breathing tube in your throat. I'm really sorry that this is so unpleasant. It's so important to get that mucus out of your lungs. I'm sorry I can't write more. With the pandemic, each nurse has multiple patients. But keep fighting. You'll go home soon, Sarah. Then Emma was writing emails to the family, telling them what was going on. Hi, all. Mick is experiencing delirium at the moment and this is making him quite agitated, hallucinating and moving his arms and legs around. The doctor asked me for some music last evening and apparently some Django Reinhardt seemed to soothe him a bit. (laughs) Elsie and I made a playlist for him this morning which is now taped on the wall by his bed and the staff already played him some of the tracks. Love to all, Emma. May the 4th. Hi Michael, we're going to video call your family shortly. It's always important for recovery to hear familiar voices. Keep fighting. I know you can do this. Best wishes, Holly. May the 4th. Dear Michael, things may seem like a dream when you're here. You may remember vivid memories or images, sounds or even smells. That's very normal. Your family have been sending their love every day. All the best in your recovery. Joe, nurse. May the 6th afternoon. Michael, we've had a busy day so far. It started off with spa time a bed bath, hair comb, nail cut, and clean. And we also shaved your beard. Sorry, we know you usually have a beard, but that's just so we can keep the area around your tracky clean. I'm unsure whether I'll work with you again, Michael. I should be heading back to my bladder and bowel team. (laughs) Best wishes, Holly. May the 7th, dear Michael, happy birthday. It's been so lovely to help look after you today on your birthday, you've been popular today. FaceTime calls from your family and a birthday card. You were also treated to a rendition of happy birthday from about 15 ICU staff around your bedside and a round of applause from staff and one of the patients. Get well soon, Sophie, physiotherapist, Monique, ITU nurse. Emma to the family. Hi all, Mick, that's me, has been calmer, more settled and has been off all sedation for the last few days. He's responding to some commands with hand squeezing, arm movements and has some improved function in his muscles, which are obviously very weakened after so long. They think he may have some nerve damage, and I don't know if this could be permanent or temporary, and what the cause is. He's still on the antibiotics for the cavitating pneumonia. I got a secondary infection in there. All love for now, Emma. May the 15th, night shift. Hi Michael, I originally admitted you to the intensive care unit 40 days ago. Well, what a roller coaster you've been on since then. And you're still here to tell the tale. This should be read in an Irish accent, by the way. I've read your birthday cards and messages to you tonight and continually remind you where you are, which seems to help when you start to get a bit agitated. Get well soon. Carmen. May the 16th. Dear Michael, it's Natasha again. Although you can't voice yet because of the cuffed tracheostomy tube, you've been able to indicate yes or no. And with your combination of guesswork and your expressive, non-verbal communication skills, (laughs) you're able to ask some questions and make comments. There have been moments when you've been distressed and needed lots of reassurance. This is completely understandable. Being in ITU under the current circumstances can be incredibly disorienting and traumatic. I wish you safely home soon, Natasha. Emma to the family, May the 17th. At short notice today, the hospital allowed me to visit Mick. That's actually basically because even though they're taking me off the sedation, I hadn't woken up. So they were getting worried. They wheeled his bed out onto the fourth floor where there's a great view of London. She likes London. So I could sit with him. I played him all the little messages you recorded for him and he definitely responded to them. He's now also had a negative Covid test. Bloody hurrah. (laughs) All love, Emma. Hi, Michael. You've been trying to tell us a few things, but we haven't been able to understand. And that's been very frustrating for you, but you've told us you're comfortable and you've stayed positive in spite of it all. Keep fighting. It'll be worth it. Dan, SLT, that's speech and language therapist. May the 19th, day 43. Please be patient with yourself, slowly but surely. I can't blame you that you really wanted to go home. Hospital can be quite boring at times. Not that I knew about it. May you continue to touch and inspire every human being you will encounter. God bless your nurse, Wincy. May the 21st. Dear Michael, talking to you this evening, you're expressing you've had to relearn many things as you recover from your illness. This is true, but remember to give yourself the time to do this. You'll get stronger day by day. Be patient if you can. We will help you as you continue on your journey of recovery. So pleased to be able to talk with you, hear your voice. Best wishes, Louisa. And then Emma on the 22nd wrote, I'm very happy to say that Michael is moving out of ICU tonight. He's talking, still confused, delirium at times, and he's trying to piece it all together, obviously, but slowly becoming more (laughs) Mick-like. I'm going to the hospital in a bit to deliver him some comfy bedclothes, a soft blanket, toiletries. He will have been in hospital eight weeks tomorrow, Spent 47 days in ICU. Looking forward to a glass of wine later. Love to all, Emma. So I came out of the ICU then, uh, and they put me in a geriatric ward. We'll come and find out. That's not funny. I don't know why you laughed at that. (laughs) The consultant said, we didn't know if you were brain dead or not, Michael. I said, you didn't tell me that at the time. He said, well, there wasn't any point. We thought you were brain dead. (laughs) One fragment drifts towards me. A nurse stands by my bed and says, you're on puree. It says, cottage pie. She feeds me pureed cottage pie with a spoon. It tastes fantastic. I love it. I say, thank you for the cottage pie and thank you for feeding me. After I was in a coma, they put me in a geriatric ward. I suppose they thought I might be terminal. One nurse must have thought I was a bit sprightly. She said, what are you in here for? I said, I don't know. And if I don't know and you don't know, well, then we're both in trouble, aren't we? In the geriatric ward, I looked down to the bottom of the bed at my big toes. The nails had come off and there was just dried blood. That's what's happening with COVID, they said. Sticky blood fills the capillaries, they burst, and bits of the toes die, like frostbite. One night in the geriatric ward, I lay in bed trying to remember my shoes. I don't know what shoes I've got. I don't know what shoes I've got at home. I could remember my Crocs. I couldn't remember what shoes I had at home. I didn't tell Emma that because I felt ashamed. I lay on my back and made up a story in my head about a cat who longs to have pasta. (laughs) He can't have pasta because his owners go away and forget to tell the boy looking after the cat that it loves pasta. I wrote the story. It's called Rigatoni the Pasta Cat. (laughs) It's come out, actually. I think it's about me in hospital, longing for hummus. (laughs) One night on the phone in the geriatric ward, I said to Emma that when I come home, I'd better live upstairs so that I can crawl to the loo. I don't think I'll be able to go up and down the stairs. A month later, when I got home, I saw the downstairs loo. I'd forgotten we had a downstairs loo. In the geriatric ward, I shrink down to a body they test. Bits of a body they test. A body in bits. Eye, toe, ear, ribs. Ribs, tongue, tailbone, eye, toe, ear, ribs. Skin, lips, ribs, eye. That's what I am. A body in bits. After the coma, four people came to my and lifted me up so that I could stand. I shook all over. I looked down and saw my legs. They were my father's legs when he was dying. You sat with me. You washed me. You cleaned me. You shaved me. You held my hand. You woke me up to stop my blood pressure going down. You sang to me. You talked to Emma. You played me her playlist. You wrote to me in the patient diary. You told me to keep fighting. It's the sort of thing we do for our children as parents. But you're not my parents a therapist came to my bed and said you had a tracheostomy so you have to be careful about what you eat you can't eat raisins she said but some days that's all I eat I said (laughs) I tell children in schools my name is Michael raisin (laughs) you can't eat raisins anymore she said a psychologist came he said we filled you up with mind-changing drugs You may have frightening hallucinations. I said, I dream I'm at a German Christmas party. I can't move. They throw berries in the air and they explode. And then we sing, Heilige Nacht, Stille Nacht. Hmm, he said. At the rehab hospital, yeah, I went to a rehab hospital next. On the first day, a guy who had been in the Greek army came to my bedside, clapped his hands together and said, one, two, three, let's go. I said, go where? I can't move. How long were you in the coma for? 40 days, I say. 40 days and 40 nights. It was a bit biblical of me, wasn't it? Mind you, I wasn't on a boat and there weren't any animals with me, and my name's not Noah either. I tried to think of his wife's name. Mrs. Noah. My wife wasn't with me. At the rehab hospital, the occupational therapist said, throw the balloon to me. I tried. It was too heavy. At the rehab hospital, one guy said he was going to bunk off going to the gym that afternoon. I lay in bed wondering what he was bunking off from. Was he bunking off from himself? The first time I walked to the toilet without my stick, Sticky McStick stick, I sang search for the hero inside yourself (laughs) to get there. I sat on the loo and thought, I wonder how many people have sung search for the hero inside yourself to get themselves to the loo. (laughs) They've been worried about my low blood pressure but they've brought me the Daily Mail, so it'll be fine in just a moment. (laughs) The consultant said, you've got three blood clots in your pulmonary artery. Should I worry, I said. He said, you'll probably digest them. I thought of clots like scabs. On camping holidays, me and my friend Mark used to eat our scabs. Maybe it'll be something like that, yeah. I learned to walk when I was one. I learned to walk when I was 17 after a car accident. I'm learning to walk again. Now I'm 74. Three times. Seems a bit excessive. When I went to the rehab hospital, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk. The physiotherapist and occupational therapist told me they would get me walking in three weeks. I didn't believe them. They were right. I was wrong. They taught me how to walk again. When I got home, there was a letter from the hospital for me. It said that while I was in intensive care, there was an outbreak of Klebsiella, cavitating pneumonia, bits of my lungs cavitated. I imagined something in my lungs making caves. Hmm. The eye doctor said, why have you still got your tracheostomy dressing on? I said, there's a hole. He said, I'll find you someone. A woman took me away. She looked in the hole. You're granulating, she said. This will hurt. It's silver. (laughs) Later, the hole closed. She's in cosmetics, the eye doctor said. (laughs) When I came out of hospital, I forgot the names of Tom Cruise, George Clooney, and Meryl Streep. I had famous Hollywood film stars forgetting syndrome. (laughs) Thoracic signed me off, but the consultant did say that the scan showed that I had a thymic cyst. Should I be worried? I said, No. Why is it there? I said. I don't know. She said. Oh, where's it come from? Where's it come from? I said. No, no, it's more like it's never gone away. She said. Oh, okay. I said. Okay. <laughs> we think we know who we are. There's the mind, and there's seeing our body and feeling it as it does its bodily things. Then you get ill and doctors and nurses start reading stuff inside you. Livers, kidneys, spinal column. You knew they were there, but you couldn't read them. I said to the consultant that just before you guys put me to sleep, you you said that I had a 50-50 chance of waking up. Was that what we all had on that ward, 50-50? More or less, he said, yeah, in the end we lost about 42%. The eye doc said they were worried about the pressure in my eyes. I was worried that I couldn't see much with my left eye. So they lasered holes in my eyes. They took out lenses and put in plastic ones. They put plastic drains in. The pressure's okay. It's just that I can't see much with my left eye. But anyway, never mind. I went to see the ear doctor. He said that bleeds in my brain had knocked out the nerve. Ah, that's what the eye doctor said, I said. The bleeds have knocked out my eye. He gave me a hearing aid. Keep it on all day, he said. He went over to a computer. I'll be able to see on here if you've got it on or not. (laughs) The consultant said that the intensive care ward was equipped for 11 patients. At the worst moment, we had 24. We're supposed to have one nurse with one patient all the time, 24 hours a day. Sometimes we had one nurse running between three or four patients. Some nurses haven't recovered. You said that the last night I lay in the bed struggling to breathe, you thought the shadow of death crossed my face. I remember the line about walking through the valley of the shadow of death, or how the angel of death passes over and kills others. I'm confused between thankful and sorry. Thankful to be here now. Sorry for those who didn't make it. Sorry for you, as I imagine what it felt like to look on that shadow. Two physios come over and sit on the sofa. They ask me, what are your long-term objectives? I thought, have I got any of them? I wondered, have I ever had long-term objectives? I don't think so. What are your long-term objectives right now, they said. Um, to be able to walk to the end of the street, go to the Jewish deli, Remember what I went there for and bring it back home. (laughs) All by myself. That would be good, I think. Yes, they say. Anything else? Live for a bit more? And come to think of it, I've never bothered to make pickled cucumbers. (laughs) I just buy them. But my mother made such lovely pickled cucumbers. I would like to try that one day. You're doing very well, they say. (laughs) They said, your voice is very feeble. You need voice therapy. After all that time in a coma, your diaphragm's forgotten how to work. They said I had to sing down a plastic straw so so that it blows bubbles and trill through my lips. I did a lot of that. Now my diaphragm works. After I came out of hospital, someone sent me a card. Resurrection of the year. I guess that of the year saves it from being
3: blasphemous.
2: (laughs) You get used to the body you've got, you know it. You may not have words for it, but you have pictures of bits of it and how the bits move. Body says, hi, I'm your back. This is how I bend. Hi, I'm your mouth. This is what your teeth feel like. Hi, I'm your legs. This is how you walk. It's your body in your mind. Then a big thing happens and your body changes. You've got a new body, new body bits, and your mind struggles to know it. To start off with, it doesn't want to. You don't want to know your new body. You want your new body to go away. Then suddenly, or sorry, then slowly, you start to find out ways to get to know it. You can try not to, though. It won't make any difference. It'll still be there saying, Hi. I'm your new body. It doesn't walk away, it's always with you. You have to get on together. That was a first run of that. When the doctor said that I had a 50-50 chance of waking up, I remember thinking, hey, actually, that's not so bad. 50-50 is quite good. Now I think 50-50 is not so good. People say to me, do you remember anything about being in the coma? I say, nope, nothing. I don't remember anything of the coma or waking up or the first days after that. Then it gets complicated. I remember times when I thought I knew what was going on, but now I know that I didn't know what was going on. My father said, so long as you've got your health and strength, you should worry. He said, you should worry ironically, so it sounds like you've got nothing to worry about. I didn't have my health and strength. Then I did. (laughs) I should be so lucky. Now I sound like Kylie Minogue. (laughs) When my father and my brother teased me, my mother would say, leave him alone. He's tired. They learnt it. First they'd tease me, and then before mum could say it, they would say, leave him alone, he's tired. It could be on my gravestone. Leave him alone, he's tired. When people meet me, they say, you're alive. And I say, are you sure? I've discovered that some people think that over 70s are dispensable, or more, if we die, There's more chance that they'll be saved. I walk into walls. The edge of the table is nearer than I think it is. I pour, but miss the cup. I miss the bottom step. You call from the living room and I go and look for you in the bathroom. The cats aren't stuck in the cupboard. They're stuck in the loo. I hold banisters. My grown up sons come over and take the dad for a walk. I don't have a lead. I don't run off, and I don't sniff other dads. (laughs) The consultant said that at the beginning, there wasn't enough PPE. One time, the PPE that came in was second-hand. One piece came out of the packing with blood on. It says on the side of the bottle of eye drops that the drops might stain my eye. It does stain my eye. I look in the mirror. There's a circle of red skin. And I wonder who's been punching me in the eye. On March the 13th, 2020, just about when I caught COVID, there was a lot of talk in the media about herd immunity. What were they thinking of? That it was going to be okay that hundreds of thousands of people were going to have to die? Later, they said they never did think that. The 66-year-old journalist said to me, yes, we know you were ill, Michael, but you're 74. But? But? That butt's doing a lot of heavy lifting. What's but about being 74? Are my days less valid than her days? If I'd copped it, would that have been more okay than if she had copped it? With the echocardiogram, I heard bubbles and beats and volcanic mud plopping. As the probe slid over my chest, some bubbles got louder, others quieter. At the end, the man said that my left ventricular fraction was good. I felt proud of my left (laughs) ventricle. At the brain hospital, they did a cognitive functioning test on me. First question was, what is the name of the prime minister? (laughs) I thought, cruel to remind me of that. One question in the cognitive functioning test of the brain hospital was matching little tiles to a picture. I struggled. I couldn't do it. I felt bad. She said, don't worry. We weren't trying to find out if you could do it or not. We were testing whether you could concentrate. (laughs) The brain surgeon said, did I want to look at my brain? I said, I've been trying to look at my brain for years. I'm a writer. He put up a slide. It looks like you've had altitude sickness, he said. I said, well, the highest I've been is the fourth floor of the Whittington Hospital. (laughs) I said to Emma, the physiotherapist at the rehab hospital back then, that I didn't think I'd be able to do a show to hundreds of children in a theatre again. She said I would. This year, I did a show to hundreds at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, hundreds of children at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. A woman with her kids asked me to sign a book. It's me, she said. It was Emma, the physiotherapist. There we are. I'll finish there. All right. I could read these are the hands to you, but uh, we'll save that if you've uh, got a copy of the book. I forgot to bring a copy down with me. Uh, but so maybe we could uh, move to questions. If any of you would like to ask questions, uh, then we could do that. So that's a sort of digest of these are the hands, and then I have a new book coming out in February called Getting Better. It was called Getting Better on the front page, getting on the on the cover, Getting Better, Michael Rosen. I said, why don't you switch that round? Then it says. Michael Rosen getting better.
3: Yeah, very good, very good.
2: Anyway, uh, so that comes out in February, so I've sort of compressed bits from, from that and uh, uh, from the book, from the two books. Yes, okay.
4: Thank you, Michael. Thank uh, you. I'm, I'm Abigail, and it's my pleasure to be able to say thank you to Michael, and I'm sure you're going to be joining me in saying a massive thank you for sharing that story with us and so many stories. The thank you. Stories within stories within stories. There's so many layers to the book, I think. But my main role here is now to turn the tables and to invite you to ask some questions of Michael. It's very happy to take them so just what we've got some roving mics I think yes they're there they're poised ready for action and I was just going to start things off because I'm here and I've got the privilege of being able to do so the wonderful thing about listening to you talking just now was how you animated those patient diaries which I think is such an important part of the book and so so full of emotion and you know they're kind of like the heartbeats really of the book and I was just wondering what it, what it did it feel like to you I mean they're a gift to you as a, as a Patient, but also as a writer, uh, what did it feel like when you first got them in your hands and read them? And... Um,
2: well, actually, to be absolutely honest, I couldn't read them. I just looked but at this would book. Would a problem. I, I, it was rather strange. It was sat on the kitchen table, and Emma would say, "That's the patient diary," and I'd go, "Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, the patient diary." And it didn't know, it's just a little kind of like what I call a Woolworths exercise book. I know Woolworths doesn't exist anymore, but you know what I mean. I would say Ryman's now, so anyway. Um, so I didn't open it, and then Emma said, it was Emma actually, who said it would be really good, this book you're doing, Michael. Not just you blathering on. Why don't you have um, the, the patient diary? I said, well, I haven't read it. She said, well, why don't you read it? I went, yeah, right. And then, so she suggested that to the editor. The editor said, what a great idea. So photocopied it and sent it to them. And uh, she said, well, have you chosen the bits? I said, no, no, I thought it would be a good idea if you did. <laughs> so I still hadn't read it. And um, I think actually I hadn't read it until the book came out.
4: Wow. Wow. Amazing.
2: And, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Some bits of it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know why. I mean, I, you know, I mean, medicine's very interesting. I mean, you are just an organism. You know, you're just there as an organism. And... I fully understand that. I mean, I had a sort of abortive medical training myself, so I just kind of think they just did all they did professionally and beyond. But I don't know why it why it sort of troubles me really. But mm. it, it does. So I haven't quite figured that out yet. Mm. They did. What, some people get a form of post-traumatic stress disorder. They get they get that when the, when the, I've made light of it. But when the, when I was asked, did I have you know traumatic? Did I was I hallucinating and so on? The reason why they come around is that quite a few people do, because quite literally, when he said mind-changing drugs, it is. I mean, you are jammed up to your eyeballs with opiates and also with paralyzing drugs because of this tube that's stuck down your throat. So when they take you off that stuff, then you are like, you know, we hear about, I don't know, rock stars or something coming off it, and people just go up the wall and start thinking that the clock on the wall is about to eat them and things like that, you know, these terrible nightmares. And all I had were these kind of funky, trippy dreams about German Christmas parties. <laughs> and one that I haven't said there, I kept, uh, I, I told myself a Christmas carol, right? I told myself in my dream and then had this great idea to rewrite it. I've got this memory of me sitting there rewriting it, but then getting upset that I couldn't remember the rewrite. It's All within the dream. So I'm going, oh, I rewrote it, and it was really good. It's a bloke with a dark, floppy moustache in it. Anyway, that's about as traumatic as it got, whereas (laughs) some poor people, I mean, quite seriously, maybe there's some people in the room now, you know and I don't mean to make light of it, that it, it is utterly traumatic. And because it's in a sort of netherland where you don't know whether you were asleep or awake, this kind of netherland between conscious and unconscious, the other way around, unconscious and conscious. It can come back to you as sort of nightmarish things in the middle of the night. And So people have told me, because I've attended some uh, seminars and so on, and it's been very disturbing for them.
4: Thank you. Right. Okay, now I will do my proper job, which is to invite you to ask questions. So, shall we have hands for questions? See. There's one there and one there. Should we do two at once? Is that all right with you, Michael? Uh, yeah, no, no,
2: as they come. Yeah, Perfect. that's right. Thank you. I'm now, of course, a world expert on... intensive care. (laughs) Yeah.
4: Have your experiences altered or reinforced any of your views on anything?
2: Well, first of all, the NHS. I mean, I'm a socialist and the NHS, in spite of the fact that Theresa Coffey said that it was invented by a Tory, um, (laughs) uh, it's not the story my parents told. In fact, I looked it up just there, right bang in the middle of Wikipedia. The first idea of a state-run health service came from the Socialist Medical Association, a, a Labour Party or TUC uh, Congress in about 1938. So I don't know what she was talking about there. But anyway, I mean, I, when I say kind of reinforced my belief in the NHS and the idea that we can run things in, in a state sort of way, albeit with local control of one sort or another, local democratic control. Um, I mean, it, it didn't just reinforce it. I mean, it put me in love with it. I mean, the kind of treatment I had and the kind of people, I've met some of them since. I've met Monique and I've met Margie and I met Carmen on the telly and I met Beth at the Good Morning Britain studio. So some of those nurses. Uh, I've met Joe. Yeah, I've met Joe. uh, I say one or two others. And of course, my friend, the consultant, um, dear Hugh. And um, they're just incredible people. I mean, but they don't know they are and they, they don't think they are. But it's very hard to describe. It's such an incredible act of what we think is important, looking after each other from the cradle to the grave, as I think it was put in 1948. And there's no higher calling, really. And so I suppose it's reinforced that and and supported that. And I take an active part in things like Enough is Enough rallies and, and so on, and meet nurses. In fact, I've, I've, I've got a new job, actually. Uh, the people who work in the health service uh, asked me to come and tell them what it was like in intensive care. And I said, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Why would I know? I'm the last person to know. But I tell you what, I'll read you what the nurses said. So I read them. So the, the uh, Royal College of Nurses annual conference asked me. So I, so I just read them, the diaries. And they were very, very pleased. And as a result, they made me an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Nurses. And I said... That wasn't me. I said it's very nice of you, but there was. I just read you the letters that you wrote. I said, "Nice work." Anyway, so yes, I I keep getting invites to talk to uh, people in the NHS, which is uh, very lovely. I feel it's at least I'm kind of returning things. So Mm. I I sort of get involved in a form of staff training, really. I suppose yes, that's right. So I've talked to ICU nurses and doctors, Royal College of Physicians, all, all that sort of thing. So I'm doing quite a lot of that these days, slightly different from. You know, 400 four-year-olds going, we're going on a bear hunt, we're going to get bit different, a little bit different. Expanded your audience. Yeah.
4: I think there was a lady over here.
1: Hello, Michael. Hello. Well, you partly answered my question was about, so you're preaching to the converted here, I think, in terms of what you've said about the importance of the NHS and almost like a battle cry for it. But I'm just wondering, so I did a sort of lone protest outside the Tory conference with an RCN t-shirt on. But I'm just wondering how we can break through and make your work. It is a political message, but how it can be amplified. Well, I think that's my question, really, or my wondering.
2: Uh, Well, luckily, it's not me in charge. I mean, people are doing very well. I think, you know, we've got all sorts of uh, sections of the population doing uh, what they're trying to do in order to defend their living standards and their conditions of work. And, of course, now the nurses are balloting this week, I think, or next week anyway. And they're fighting, obviously, for their salaries, but they're also fighting for the NHS. I mean, these things are, you know, sometimes the media try to separate the two and sort of somehow say that if... Teachers come on strike. They're against education. Well, no, they're not. They're fighting for the, for the profession and for the profession to be able to replenish itself, to recruit and, um, you know, for the conditions of education. So it's, it's quite hard to get that message across. I, I agree, particularly with the kind of strange, weird questioning that interviewers do. I don't know whether you watched some of the interviews with Mick Lynch. But, uh, I mean, they're almost like comedy routines, aren't they? I mean, it's just extraordinary. When I watched the one with Kay, Kay Burley asking Mick Lynch um, about the pickets, somebody saw that one, and she said, are the pickets going to be violent? And he went, you can see them over there, look, look. They're just standing there. Yeah, but are they going to be violent? Well, no, They look, they're just over there. Look. You can see them, Kay. Yes, but we need to know whether they're violent. And no, then no, no, look, you see them. Look, they're just standing you know, there. About five times, and she started, her head started going from side to side. And then she tweeted later. She said something like about Mick Lynch losing control. And he was standing there, going, oh, "You can see him over there." I mean, it, 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 you know, he never loses control whatsoever. I mean, I met him a couple of times, and um, you know, I just sort of thought, well, we're moving into a new phase. I think I've written an article a little bit about that in the Guardian today. Anyway, I've sort of suggested that uh, while we've been focusing on these conferences, there's another great big wheel of politics which is just about to happen, which is much bigger than, well, indeed, whether Theresa Coffey says the NHS was invented by Tories or not, or um, how Liz got on. Um, so anyway, you can have a look at that online. as uh, my comments. I've, In fact, talking of a Christmas carol, it's actually I'm reading the, uh, the Tory party conference through the prism of a Christmas carol. There we are. It all comes together. Um, so Bob. please do look online uh, or buy a copy even of the Guardian. Uh, yes, that's right. So it's in today's Guardian. Yeah,
4: Very you. timely. Thank you. Right. Uh, oh, my goodness. All hands, all hands, all at once. There's a young man right here. Who I think we'd like to ask a question and a gentleman behind him and then we'll, we'll try and take
1: some more. One, are those the shoes that you couldn't remember? And also, do you still have Sticky McStick Stick?
2: I'll come to Sticky McStick Stick in a minute. Just hang on. Yeah, these are the shoes that I couldn't remember. I tend not to buy shoes very often and um, I did these are the ones the very ones I'm glad you spotted that yeah I lay in bed and all I could I have um, these crocs that I had in my by the side of my bed not that I was going to get up because I couldn't but anyway I had the crocs and all I could think of what are my shoes like so yes these are they my friend yes indeed and um, what was your sticky McStick stick stick question Um,
1: do you still have sticky McStick stick stick?
2: of course are you crazy (laughs) Sticky McStickstick is by the front door. Should I ever need him? He looks at me rather wistfully as I go out the door going, I don't suppose you need me, do you? Fine, go to the corner shop if you want. That's all right. So he sits there by the door, and he's a wonderful grey NHS stick. And um, yes, I learned to walk with Sticky McStickstick. I noticed Tony Ross in the book I've done called Sticky McStickstick, I sort of romanticized him a bit and turned him into a kind of Mary Poppins (laughs) umbrella handle. But um, that's okay. It's okay, you know, it's poetic, Uh, yes, visual license. But yeah, anyway, all good with Sticky stick If ever you come around my place, I I show people. I say, there's Sticky stick. And Emma says, yes, all right, Michael, okay, okay, okay. Okay." Actually, I also have another one because one of my friends was a bit upset that I only had a Sticky stick and thought I ought to have an Arsenal stick. And so he sent it to me and said, it's called Gooner McStick Stick. For those of you who don't know, Gooner is um, the nickname for Arsenal fans. So I also have Gooner McStick Stick. So there's a bit of rivalry by the front door <laughs> where they sit there going, no, me, 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 you don't know me, take me. And I go, no, quiet boys, quiet, 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 quiet. Shh. And then just for Gooner McStick Stick, I go, ooh, to, ooh, to be, ooh, to be, uh. <laughs> and then he's okay. He's okay.
4: Great question. Thank you. Um, I can um, see attempting to follow up. We're
3: going on a bear hunt. I wrote a sequel to We're Going On
4: a Bear Hunt. I her. have
2: written a sequel. And a, and a I have. You've written one?
3: Yes. I told you,
2: Michael. Brilliant. Good.
4: <laughs> Thank you very That's much. That's lovely.
2: Yes. I think your mum had to snatch the mic away <laughs> from you. All right, darling. That's (laughs) her. Great work, my friend. Great work. Very
5: good. I'll I'll just pass him the microphone back. Yes. (laughs) Thank you for your talk. Uh, You don't have to answer this question, but would you like a jar of my homemade pickle cucumbers?
2: (laughs) Too bloody right, mate. Oh, very good.
5: And do you have any allergies?
2: No. What have you put in it?
5: <laughs> yeah. uh, gherkins, homegrown, organic.
2: Yeah. Oh, wow. And
5: then you have a choice. Uh, the, the, there's malt vinegar. Some have got dill in. Some have got um, coriander. Some have got uh, tarragon. <laughs> but they've all got special ingredient. Dave's insanity sauce.
2: All right. Dave's insanity sounds fantastic. <laughs> Wonderful. Malt vinegar, that's interesting. My mum made it in brine. She did it with salt water. Yeah, that's right. And there were two kinds, the knobbly the, the kind and the others that Jews call new greens, which are, taste completely different. Yes, that's right. So, yeah.
5: There's a card. It's got pickled cucumbers on the back. So right. if you want them, just let that's me know the where clue, to drop isn't them it? off. The
2: pickled cucumbers, yeah. Well, Would you like to pass it forward? We're going on a bear hunt sequel, man. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you very much. I will bend down, but I can't be sure I'll be able to get up again. But yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm I'm
5: visiting my daughter in London this Sunday, so I could drop
2: them off. And um, I can see that he also runs a Cayley band as well. So (laughs) there's a little advert for his Cayley band. So with a bit of like, would you play the pipes? Never.
5: I'm the fiddle player.
2: You're the fiddle player? Yeah. Right. Do you play uh, Give Me Your Hand? Do you know that one? I do. I know that one from do, a Planckstee uh, album. Do, do, do. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, lovely. Good. I am a bit of a fan of Irish yeah. traditional I'm music. I'm waiting for someone to snatch the microphone. Yeah, the oh. yeah it's, it's, a, it's a very old Jewish thing, you know, Irish Ceilidh bands. It's a thing, you know. Yeah, no, I think, uh, yeah.
4: Well, fantastic series of questions. Thank you. I, I think you have the microphone, or would you like to ask questions? Um, Thank you so much. It's really so insightful to hear what you're saying um, as an occupational therapist and hey. a colleague. Um, thank you so much for talking about <laughs> occupational therapy and physiotherapy. We are often a very forgotten about profession when we talk about the NHS. But what I'd like to know is that as a therapist, we, we love eat, drink, dress, move. We love talking about getting people up and doing what's important to them. What made you feel like Michael again during your rehab? What made me... Feel like, more like Michael again, or Mick, Mike, is yes. it, during your therapy? What, what part of your rehab made you feel like, like you again, like that
2: you had returned? I think while I was at the rehab hospital, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be horrible, but I don't think I did. I was so estranged from my body that I just felt I didn't ever feel for, during that time that each thing... That you were asking me to do, I was diligently obliging. (laughs) I don't think I ever felt, you see, that all I could express was that I wasn't the same anymore, and I didn't know why. I didn't know when I was, it's quite hard for me to explain, but when I was in the rehab hospital, I didn't know that I'd been in a coma for 40 days. I think Emma told me, but I just ignored her. Right, she said, because because it was during you know apart from those people who were partying, nobody was allowed to come and see me. So, so, but Emma came to outside in the little garden, and the kids, my our kids, did. And she said, I remember her saying, "You were in a coma for forty days, Michael." And I went, "Right." It, it didn't mean anything. I, I didn't. And the point is, it was. I mean, I should have thought about it. It was sunny. It was hot. It was late June. You know, June the 27th. You know, and when I'd gone in, it was still felt like winter, you know, but I hadn't pieced it together at all. So what the OTs did, it was more the fact that every day you were setting me things that I could do and that you were seeing what it was I couldn't do and knowing what it was that, which muscle block or whatever that I needed to do. So I've made light of the balloons thing, you see. This was absolutely crucial. It was between two parallel bars, as you know, two parallel bars, and she would make, and this was Ashma, who was also on the telly, but it made me kick the balloon. And I, I couldn't lift my leg up, because all this had gone completely, you see. Um, I don't think I sort of started feeling sort of that I was me again, until I could walk, I, I set myself some laps around Muzzle Hill, where I live, and uh, I set myself some laps to do, when when I could do like two or three, and then I would come home and go, yes, I've walked around the block twice. Yeah, all right, Dad, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so there was a bit of that going on, and that was quite exciting, those sort of breakthrough moments. And then in um, the paperback of the book, there's the first time I climbed Muswell Hill, the clue's in the name, and um, it's quite steep. And it was quite funny, actually. What, what my son at the time was living at the bottom of Muswell Hill, and I went to see him, and then I said, I think I'm going to have a go at climbing it, you see. And he said, Are you sure, Dad, I can, I can run you home. I said, no, I th- I th- I'm going to give it a go, because I've been doing some slopes. So anyway, uh, that was at about s- half six. At 11, I texted him and said, I've just got in. Uh-huh. You see? <laughs> Complete lies. It had taken me about ten minutes, <laughs> anyway. So, so anyway, he went, I text back, oh my God, I could have run you home. I said, sorry, just do Anyway, um... We do that sort of thing to each other. But anyway, yeah, I thought you'd think, you know, it was funny, but you didn't. You just... (laughs) Poor old Joey. Anyway, yeah, so um, I think it was sort of moments like that rather than actually inside, because, I mean, when I came out of rehab, I think I could walk probably, yeah, about the length of the stage. That was the furthest I could walk. So it felt very strange that I was that kind of a person, so... The breakthrough didn't happen then, but the point was, as I often say, you help me to help myself. It's very different from that you've got medicine that cures you of stuff or tries to, and then therapy this kind of therapy of of physios and OTs, it's helping you help yourself. They can't do it. They can't they can't they're not making you move your arm. If they move your arm, it's not you doing it. So everything you've got to learn how to do. So it's actually what your mind does. And whether you're prepared, if they say, you know, do that 20 times, then do it. Or get on the exercise bike, uh, then you do it. So, And people who don't tend to (laughs) go the other way. So I I kind of learned that. So it's helping you help yourself. That was the crucial thing to learn. Which is, you know, not bad for a 74-year-old, I
3: think. (laughs) Indeed.
2: Yeah, a degree in helping me help myself. Yeah.
4: (laughs) I think, at the risk of going over slightly, we've got... Maybe time for two more very quick questions. There's a lot of pointer going on there, and then someone has the mic already here. Hi, Michael. Hi. Um did the hummus live up to your expectations? <laughs> oh yeah. And the question I wanted to add to that is what little simple pleasures do you have now that you that might be because of your experience? You know, when things, traumatic things happen to people, they do tend to appreciate things, not just the big stuff like Mm. the awesome NHS, but as well as hummus, what do you now find pleasure in? Well, Emma
2: had planted some uh, thyme, little plants on the little balcony we got, some thyme and uh, some rosemary, I think, and some mint. And I remember just sort of squeezing it, you know, so that it uh, wets up, you know, so like that, yeah. Oh, that's great, yeah. Oh, yeah, brilliant. And so, um, I think that was that was a sort of breakthrough moment, really, because uh, obviously, you know, hospitals don't—they smell like hospitals, um, which is you know fine. But um, I think that was that was one thing. And uh, raisins, yes. I've, I, I have taken zero notice of the speech and language therapist and um, I do eat raisins all the time particularly chopped up with bananas raisins and bananas It's one of my favorites. Yeah, so uh, yes
4: Somebody at the back. Yes that over there, please. I think we'll have to make that the last question I'm afraid What made you want to become an author?
2: What made me want to become a dolphin? (laughs) author What made you want to become an author? An author? Right. I think it was probably my mum and dad. My mum and dad and my brother, they they all love books. And so I'm the sort of youngest on the line there. My mum and dad used to, they were both teachers. Think about that. You know, you come in from school. And they say, what did you do in school today? And they meant it. (laughs) And, uh, oh, you know, stuff. Yeah. What sort of stuff? Uh, kind of history? Stuff. History? That's really interesting. What sort of history? I don't know. Just sort of history. History. That, uh, chartists. Chartists. They're really interesting. What have you got to do with the chartists? I don't know. Um, it's An essay, I think it's called, uh, uh, Why Did Chartism Fail? Fail? <laughs> Chartism didn't
3: fail.
2: Just come over here. I've got a book for you. You see here, why chartism didn't fail for Michael to help him with his essays. Um, so that's what it was like. Um, but my mum and dad loved poetry and stories and plays and uh, Shakespeare and all that sort of thing. And my mum, she was quite intriguing, really. She was quite mysterious. You know, she'd be suddenly, she loved knitting. She loved knitting. My mum. She knitted loads and loads of stuff for me. She'd sit there knitting, and suddenly she'd look up and go, "Tread softly, because you tread on my <laughs> dreams." <laughs> what did you say, mum? No, 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 it's okay.
3: <laughs>
2: well, then my dad. My dad loved sawing. I mean, he was a sort of DIY freak before sort of DIY freaks existed, really. But he was always sawing something. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> just sawing up some stuff. And then in the middle of it all, you'd go, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day till the last syllable. <laughs> so they, they were quite um, strange in that way. And then my brother would be imitating my dad. My dad, if he wanted, to, to, if he wanted you to be quiet, they, were, they weren't very repressive, my parents at all, but if my dad wanted you to be quiet, he'd go like this. The
3: noise.
2: (laughs) That's all he did. That's all he did. Just the noise. So my brother used to get it up as an act. You know, we'd be making a noise in the bedroom. My brother would go, The noise. So, So, like, if it was breakfast, you know, and we made, maybe me and my brother making a bit of noise at breakfast or something, you see, and the old man behind the paper would bring the paper down just about to go, the noise, it's like my brother, would be on the other side of the table, going the noise. And like, and my dad would be left there with his hand in mid air, going the. Like, the noise. Like, anyway, yeah. So uh, I didn't realise that you could write down this stuff, but that was because my brother started doing it all. So I kind of learnt it from my brother, really, that you could write down these things. But um, he didn't do it. He, did, I mean, he instead of going into cabaret, he became um, a paleontologist. <laughs> Or a fossil, as I say. <laughs> yeah, my brother became a fossil. He doesn't think that's funny, so I'd I, uh, <laughs> better not say that.
4: I Yes, I fear we should draw to a close, but we have a lot to thank your parents for, I think, Michael. Yes. While, you you, while you're accepting business cards, I believe somebody put that book on the desk with the hope that you might read.
2: Yes, that and that the editor of it is the doctor who came round with the oximeter who saved um, my life. And this is a wonderful collection of poems by people who work in the NHS, apart from me. I don't work in the NHS. Well, I do now though, don't I? (laughs) Fellow of the royal (laughs) (laughs) College. These are the hands that touch us first, feel your head, find the pulse, and make your bed. These are the hands that tap your back, test the skin, hold your arm, wheel the bin, change the bulb, fix the drip, pour the jug, replace your hip. These are the hands that fill the bath, mop the floor, flick the switch, soothe the saw, burn the swabs, give us a jab, throw out sharps, design the lab. And these are the hands that stop the leaks, empty the pan, wipe the pipes, carry the can, clamp the veins, make the cast, Log the dose and touch us last. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going so, to make that into a film. I'm going to do that like I do my poems on my website. I'm just going to do do them and read them straight to camera in um, the first week in December. So that will go up on my fantastic. website fairly soon. Thank
4: you. We look forward to that. Thank you very, very much again, Michael. It's my privilege and a pleasure to hear you tonight. Thank and you. Thank you to thank you, you thank all you. for your questions and taking time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at BeHamletFest. All information about the festival and upcoming events can be found on our website www.birminghamliteraturefestival.org. The Birmingham Lit Fest Presents podcast is produced by 11C and Birmingham Podcast Studios for writing West Midlands.